Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. Welcome to episode 167 from Panoramic Outdoors. I'm Sheldon Grant, and today's episode is brought to us by nobody but iHunter. iHunter is Canada's number one digital hunting companion, uh, an app that we use all the time. We'll probably get into a little bit of uh, detail here in the intro. Here in the intro, though, I got my good friend, pal, friend, pal, April. What's going on (laughs) over there? Oh, not a whole lot. Just uh, at mom and dad's for a little uh, gross session tomorrow. Oh, nice. You guys love doing that shit, hey? Oh yeah, like I gr- I grew up doing it, so yeah, it's kind of a good um, part. Yeah, we've got a cool guest, Adam Grenda. We had actually his wife on, um, quit, I don't know, what is it, four or five episodes ago. But this guy is self-proclaimed. What is he like, big dick killer, or what did you say? <laughs> self-proclaimed dick bone king. Dick bone king, and <laughs> you'll you'll have to stay tuned to figure out what that means. Um, yes. I listened to a little bit here editing, and it, it seems like an awesome episode. So I'm I'm looking forward to it to get looking forward to putting it all together and listening to it. So you and Brendan did a wonderful job. Um, what is going on? I know we've been kind of talking about the mustache thing in the last couple episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, any updates on the Movember that you know of? Um, well, from the store, we've had a few items sold and we had noted that we would do $2 from every item sold. So there's a, there's some money going towards that from there. And if any, uh, if anybody else gets a little quick, quick sale in on the website. Yeah. This, this, this episode is going to launch like the first of December, but we will stay, you know, we'll take the few couple sales and probably still donate a few items. Uh, or $2 from every item. Not only that, but we've had some donations to the Movember website. And a big shout-out to our number one lawyer in Winnipeg who made a donation. So thanks to him. I won't mention his name. Keep that uh, confident. But um, thanks to him for making one of the one of the bigger donations. And, yeah, thanks to everyone that's, you know, um, donated to the cause. I mean, it's a, sh- it's a shitty thing, but we can spin it and have a little bit of fun and raise some money. So it was a, it was a good Movember for Team Panoramic. Yeah. Um, what else do we have on the docket? Um, speaking of iHunter, there's a few things that I did want to mention to you, April, and I wanted to know if you knew this or not. Um, but when you're, did you know that the, the iHunter has a store online where you can buy gift cards? Really? I didn't know you could buy gift cards there. Well, yeah, like you can, you can shop the iHunter app and go into whatever territory or province you're in, and then you can actually, um, yeah, you can purchase everything. You can get 20, 20% off landowner maps. And you can actually, I think, sale and bundle it so you can send it to someone as well. Um, so you could so you buy can... somebody a gift card for Christmas. I believe so. And I'm going to double check that and maybe follow up on the next episode to make sure I'm correct. But I'm pretty sure you can. So that's a really cool present or stocking stuffer for somebody that's in the outdoor world. And the thing is with iHunter is I think a lot of people do have to understand too, iHunter isn't just a hunting app. Like if mm-hmm. you hike or camp or Mm-hmm. backcountry camp whatever bird hunt up like upland hunt fishing well, everything. Hunt, hunting's hunting um <laughs> but yeah everything mm-hmm. it's it's a tool that you need i use it at work a lot like really yeah just like looking at landowner maps or finding connecting roads especially in the winter time mm-hmm. um you can find kind of like 
where your PR roads are and stuff like that, like the backcountry roads. So it's, it is useful in a lot mm-hmm. of different ways. I've been, um, because you can migrate over, um, locations and waypoints from other apps onto iHunter. I've kind of been doing that because it, it always seems like I go out and I do something and maybe I don't have my phone on me. So I put my waypoint into my Garmin watch because it's on me and then I'm doing something else and I do have my phone and I put the waypoint in my Garmin on my um, explore app on my phone or I put it into Google and then I've got all these like waypoints in all these different locations and I've started putting them onto just iHunter now so it's kind of funny because I've got ice fishing spots I've got um, mushroom hunting spots I've got grouse hunting spots I've got like deer trails deer rubs and scrapes where I put my blind where I put my cameras like all kinds of stuff yeah and the other thing I want to add to is like a lot of people will look at it and be like, oh man, I can just go look on Google Maps. But like, I'm just going to say, if you like, for instance, for Manitoba, if you go to the iHunter um, app and go to Manitoba and start purchasing it, you know, the built in layers that you get. And these are just a few of them. I'm going to list them off here. But you get your First Nations reserve. So you get to find out what's what there. The wildfires from 2016 to 2021, which means mm-hmm. like you can, you can plan a hunt around new growth, which is awesome for elk mm-hmm. and moose. Or um, mushroom wildlife hunting. mushroom hunting, another good one. Yeah. Uh, wildlife management areas, duck mountain zone, southern zone, the paw zone, northern zone, um, game bird hunting zones, and then you when you get onto the subscription side of things, you can do a- additional add-ons like crown land and other special use areas. Um, it's crazy, yeah. The, the the layers they have, it's 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 a lot better mm-hmm. than just a just a Google Earth, right? So. Yeah. Um. That being said, iHunter uh, might be working with us a little bit with this uh, new fishing bingo we have going on. Do you want to Ooh. fill everyone in? Do you, you want to like, dun, 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 dun. so I'm like, dun, dun, dun. cheers. Yes. Okay. So we've been working really hard on this for the last little while. Um, and we have come up with a little winter kind of um, fun community building contest for our listeners and our viewers and subscribers and whatever you want to call all the people that kind of follow panoramic outdoors on multiple apps and ways so what we're doing is um bingo over the winter so we're going to run it for three months we're going to run december january february so it will be the first of december until the last day of february and so each month um will be a different configuration on your bingo card um, in which you'll need to win. So for example, one month would be like a line, one month would be a stamp, one month would be um, an X, etc. An L. Yeah, an L, whatever it is. So there'll be three different configurations. Ooh, maybe a P, P oh, for panoramic. Good one. Um, <laughs> so and so you get three, three different months, three different configurations, and there are three different prize packs at the end of each month. And so what we're going to do is we are going to have the first person that gets the configuration completed will get something extra and special. And um, then they will get multiple entries into the end large prize pack. Right. So to be the, if you're the first person in the month, you are extra special and you get extra things and then extra entries into a prize pack at the end. So then what we're asking people to do is we will have a bingo card that we'll put up online. And so you'll need to save that and print it off um, or keep it on your phone, I guess. And what you'll need to do is 
on the bingo card, there will be like a task to do or an item or like a specific photo to take. So you'll take that photo and you'll post it and tag panoramic, super easy. And then once you have your configuration completed, you'll send all of those pictures all together to panoramic with your card done. Right. So that makes it a little like it makes it easier for us in the sense of we don't have to have a list of like 40 different people and each of the squares that they may or may not have gotten and whether or not they got a bingo like keep track on your own card and send us all the pictures when you're completed everybody's cards are the same easy right yeah so it'll be that simple like um, posting the pictures and tagging panoramic and then once you have a bingo or a configuration completed you'll send all the photos that correspond to panoramic right and to like dummy this down for guys like me it's basically if you're going out ice fishing and you go and you catch a perch let's just say right catch a perch take a picture of the perch look on your bingo card oh yeah there's one here catch Mm -hmm. perch Mm -hmm. boom there's one square and this like goes on for months so you might not win the first month but you might want to win the second you might win the final prize and we've got some really we've got some really cool prizes from a lot of different companies throughout not only Manitoba, but across Canada, like co-op for instance, is, is going to be donating some gas cards. So like, if mm-hmm. you know, that could be one of your prizes and that could help you get to Lake, you know, one day. So, mm-hmm. um, this is free to do, yep. right? This yeah. is free. All you gotta do is take a picture, enter it online. Um, the other question I have for you, April is that's mostly Instagram, but are we going to be doing something kind of close with Facebook as well for anybody that doesn't have Instagram or have we thought that far yet? Um, I mean, I don't see, uh, we haven't talked about Facebook specifically, but still the same thing, right? As long as, yeah. you know, you're posting the stuff and you're tagging panoramic, we can still check on that and see that you did it. Um, and then once you have your bingo for that month, then you send all the pictures together with your card. Yeah. 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 So that wouldn't be super easy. Super easy. It's a super cool thing that Brendan April came up with. So, um, looking forward to looking at everyone's fish and where they're fishing and, mm-hmm. um, you know, wearing their gear out there, staying warm and making hot chocolates. Catching yep. fish. And as, as you had mentioned, we've got some really good, um, people that have donated some things. You want to say that, yeah, do you know a couple that you have? Yeah. Um, you want me to go first? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, like some of the people that are that are donating and helping out with the causes, obviously our, ourselves, like we're going to be doing some of our own prizes, um, mm-hmm. co-op, uh, like the Federation of Co-op. So this isn't just the Heritage Co-op in Brandon or the Nepo Gladstone Co-op. This is Co-op Across Canada. They're going to be donating some uh, gas cards for this initiative. Um, and then we also have Wool Love who will be sending in a few prize packages. So it could be like yeah. uh, your Merino Wool long underwear shirt or or long johns or whatever it may be. We've been wearing it for years and just love the stuff. So can't go wrong there. Um, Stillwater Outdoors. Yeah. And still the, the package that Stillwater has sent us is like, is a really good one. And essentially without giving away everything that's in it, it's pretty much, you would only need to purchase a couple of little things to um, be like fully set up to go fishing. Yeah. Ice fishing. That's super, that's super great. And like, for a free thing to do just to like get active on not only social media, but get out on the ice. And like mm-hmm. I said, for a free thing to do, these are like thousands of dollars worth of gifts yeah. or not gifts or prizes. Right. Prices, so, yeah. and not only that, we've got a couple other businesses that are still waiting to hear from. So mm-hmm. hopefully like in the next, maybe next podcast episode or so we'll be doing the same kind of little fish bingo ad read and maybe we'll have a couple more businesses to add, but um, yeah, get your cards out when they come out and, and let's start this. It's going to be fun. 
Yeah. Um, last thing before we give it up to the big dick slinger there or whatever his name was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, w- I do want to mention Harvester Outdoors. And they're, and they're another one that I actually just forgot to mention their name in the fish bingo. Um, Sean there at Harvester, if you have time, go down to Mercy Street in Selkirk. Go and, go and see him. He's got ice fishing gear. He's got uh, striker gear for ice fishing. Um, they do commercial fishing. He's got a little archery range. He's got storage. He's got a little bit of everything. And if you are looking for something very specific or something where you don't want to go to the big box store and spend your money on, but you want to give it to someone local, give him a mm-hmm. shout because he might be able to find it for you uh, and get and just like special order it. So big thanks to Sean and everyone at uh, Harvester Outdoors for their continued support. Um, it's great to have those local mom and pop shops supporting our podcast. Uh, so we're obviously going to support them as well. Other than that, what else you got? Anything else before we head into this episode? No, let's do it. Yeah, for sure. And all you people out there, all you people out there that are uh, celebrating Christmas and going to big buck nights and everything in the next little while, make sure you stay safe. Find a sober driver. Um, it's this time of the year now. You're going to be not saying you have to be extra careful. You should be careful all the time. But uh, it's that time of the year where we don't want any terrible news so be careful out there call us over driver call me so i'd like to welcome adam grenda to the podcast welcome adam how are you doing i'm good thanks for having me great we're kind of excited to have you uh tuning in from remote alaska yeah i live kind of in the middle of nowhere and we're starting (laughs) to get some snow so that's exciting and uh, for those listening, Adam is uh, Tana's husband. We just had Tana on the podcast, but she spoke so highly of her husband, Adam, that we decided we also needed to have him on the podcast and tell us a little bit of his side of all of those things and a little bit about bush planes. So, um, Adam, the very first thing that we do on our podcast for everybody to kind of get to know you um, is what we call the five burning questions. And Tana might have kind of told you about this to get you ready. And if she didn't, great. And if she did, that's okay too. She did not. So let's she, have it. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Um, Brennan, how many do you have? Uh, I see all five in front of me. So I'll just. Oh, you see all five? Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to so. go one, two, three, and you can go four or five. Sure. There you go. Okay. Okay. Adam, my first question for you is if you had one last meal on this planet, what would you eat and what would you wash it down with? Oh man, I'd probably do uh, like a tomahawk steak. I love eating cow. We eat a lot of wild game, but it's hard to beat a good cow. Mm. And uh, yeah, medium rare, anything more than that's like a felony. And I don't drink alcohol anymore. I've been off the sauce for like nine years. I'd probably do like Roy Rogers. I'm kind of lame in the in the drinks department or something like that. Um, But yeah, that'd probably be my last meal. Nice. Um, So now I have a question about this. So when you're when you're saying cow, is this like a grass fed finished? Are we talking corn fed finished? Are you talking like wagyu? What do you what do you prefer? I don't. I don't really have, I don't know, a specialty cow or anything like that. But it's just a marbling when it comes to wild game, so lean and everything like that. Yeah. When you eat a piece of beef, it's like just you taste the difference. It melts in your mouth. Obviously, not nearly as healthy for you on the yeah. macros and the, nutri- and the nutrient side. But, man, hard to beat a ribeye and tomahawks. Those things are just huge. So, um, Like Brennan and I would – when you said tomahawk, I was like, yes. Yes, we like this guy. That's yeah. – 
probably our favorite thing. I mean, I'm speaking for Brennan, just knowing what we <laughs> like to have, but um, yes, we have recently got into the Wagyu Cross Angus here in uh, Manitoba. And that stuff is amazing. Like just, <clears throat> you, you literally could cut it with a spoon. Yeah, It's just so good. tender. That's the super marbled stuff. Right? Yeah. 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 So, so nice. And I mean, Wagyu, like the actual Wagyu that you could buy in the grocery store, like you can pay up to like $200 for a steak. Uh, And it is same thing. Like there's quite a bit of marbling in it. And I actually prefer a little bit of the mix. Like when it has that much marbling, you sort of, you sort of feel like you're eating a stick of butter. And like, I I don't know, I don't prefer a stick of butter. So (laughs) having it with a little bit of um, meat in it is nice. Okay, Adam, my next question for you is... Uh, what is your favorite large animal caliber uh, and why? Oh, man. Uh, I guess I'd kind of do it backwards. Let's start with the, the reason why. I got a buddy, Brady. Um, he might listen to this. And uh, his joke is they can't be too dead. So I shoot a three thirty eight <laughs> Remington Ultra Mag pretty much for everything. Um, I was just like 20 minutes ago shooting a seven song because I'm going to go on a caribou hunt soon. But, uh, yeah, we shoot a lot of moose and we live in big brown bear country, some of the biggest bears in the world. So if you have an issue or you are bear hunting, mm-hmm. like 338 rum for that is like the minimum. I've even thought about going bigger, like a 375 or I also carry a 458 sometimes with like a brush gun, 458 lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 338, I'm shooting 285, one of the ELDMs out of that. It's got a really killer BC. It's a match bullet. Um, I've shot moose from 200 out to like six, 700 yards and Wow. Don't hit them in the shoulder, shoot them in the lungs, and that bullet really performs well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just, it's a lot of horsepower behind it. Right. Nice. And my kids shoot that too. So I'm kind of the opposite of a lot of people where, like, oh, you can do it with a seven SOM or you can do a seven or a 30, 300 PRC or a 30 nozzler or something. I have my, uh, my 13 and my 15 year old daughters. They shot brown bear and moose this year, and I had them shoot a 338 ROM. Because nice. I, I don't want to track stuff and they can handle it. <laughs> and I've, I've showed them how to shoot a big gun. Suppressors really help for that. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, they are such amazing shots. They're really, really good. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. When, how, when are they allowed to start uh, rifle hunting? Well, that's because weird. Like, you age can, wise. You can hunt under an adult and kind of fill their bag limit. I mean, you could do it when you're three, there's not oh, an wow. age restriction oh, sure. or anything like that. And once you're 10, you can get your own tags. So okay. that's pretty cool. Okay. So I'm guessing the, the kids have been on their own tags since 10 then, probably in your house. Yeah, I got, I think I've got all three of the kids hunting, either black bear, caribou, moose, brown bear, or a mix of the, all those. And then I have an 11-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old daughter that haven't killed any big game. They shot a lot of small game, but nice. they're kind of next in the hopper to go. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> Shit, yeah. Yeah, I think it's 12 here in Manitoba. <clears throat> you can yep. be 10 years old and hunting. So you'd write your uh, your hunter safety. And then you can share your bag limit of your adult for waterfowl and turkeys. Mm-hmm. And then when you hit 12, you automatically get your hunter safety. And then it's off to the races. Then you're on your own. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Similar to most states, lower 48. Did you, yeah. Did well, you, if you can uh... walk, you can shoot a deer. <laughs> yeah. That's going to go for us, probably. <laughs> Um, my next question for you, Adam, is, um, if you had, and this is anywhere in the world and any animal, if you had a bucket list hunt, what would it be? Ooh, I don't have anything that just jumps to the top of my head. I got a doll sheep and a bighorn. So I've thought about completing the slam. 
that's not like a super big priority to me. Uh, I know my wife really wants a polar bear. That doesn't really turn my crank. I'd probably do, ooh, I'd probably do like a Marco Polo. One of those sheep just looks super, super cool. Um, something really challenging like horseback, high altitude, and then hiking. Um, but yeah, I'd, pr I'd probably do that. You guys like the tough stuff, hey? <laughs> but you guys know that the ones that hurt, you remember those. The deer yes. you shot off the side of the road, it's like, oh, yeah, I think I remember that. But <laughs> the, one you, yeah. the one you slept on the mountain and you carried out six or seven miles and dislocated your shoulder, I've done all that. And that stuff, like, man, you remember those. Yeah, mm -hmm. you remember every little detail of that. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. Those are a lot better stories than road hunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I will take sure. a road deer all day long. I'm an opportunist, but <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah. try and go pretty hard. Right on. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to take a couple of the last questions here. Um, one we ask kind of everybody, we call it fuck you money. Um, if somehow you were just, you know, bag of cash on your lap, you can't invest it and you can't spend it on anybody else. What would you be buying for yourself? Cocaine and hookers. Um, are you a, are you a pipeliner because i'm a pipeliner and that's like my, my yeah no i just that's thing my buddy and i throw around all the time um i would definitely buy a lot more airplanes i have a super cub it's great i love the machine it's perfect where i need here but it has its limitations and so i'd buy oh man i'd probably buy a super modded sq2 i'd probably buy a experimental 185 i'd probably buy a beaver and uh you know, just have a whole lot of airplanes to fit different missions and things like that. So what, what, um, the, the first one was it uh, an SQ2 and I can't remember the second one you said, what, what makes those different than what you already have? Well, a buddy of mine's got an SQ2 and I've always called bullshit on this, but I saw him, he's a really good pilot and I saw him with a thousand pounds in the airplane. So that's, uh, fuel gear and himself. And he took off at 180 feet. My Super Cub, empty with just me in it and half fuel, will take off in 180 feet. So the performance when you put weight into that airplane is just mm -hmm. astronomically better. And he can land it shorter. He can land with that load in like 160, 170 feet. And I saw it. I stepped it off. I videoed it. And I was like, I said, I don't believe you show me. He's like, all right. And so he showed me. And that was impressive. Um, so Super Cub will do it, but you're going to need much more room or make multiple trips where that airplane is just bigger but it's lighter, it's got more horsepower, and the weight-to-horsepower ratio on that airplane is so much better than mine. It's just a whole different machine. And so that's still like a, a bush plane, kind of? Yeah, it's just like a cub. You got one guy up front and then one or two people sitting behind you, kind of side by side. Right. But uh, a lot more room, a lot more performance envelope, and a whole. I went and flew it, and uh, it's a whole different airplane to fly. It's just uh, I've never been put into the seat with an airplane like that before it puts a smile on your face but i think it's like quarter million dollars for one of those so Holy. yeah you want to be careful flying it when i jumped in that thing i was like oh quarter million don't crash <laughs> yeah. yeah i gotta keep this one up in the air nice and yep. slow <laughs> yeah yeah so uh going off with the planes and and that for the final question here the craziest place you have landed a plane oh man i got plenty of those <laughs> um is, is there one really that really gets... just kind of puckered you and it's a little difficult. Oh yeah, I got a lot. I'm just trying to think. <laughs> there was a probably the most recent one. There was a really big set of moose sheds I saw this year, and moose sheds will wreck you or kill you 
faster than anything just because your your tunnel vision to pick them up. And I knew they were a big Boone and Crockett set, and they ended up scoring like 231, 232. Really big fronts. And um, I was looking, and they were just kind of in the swamp, and there was one tiny little ridge to get into. And I've come close to crashing usually every year on moose sheds. And this year I don't think I did because I've learned and I've tried to grow from that. <laughs> there was a spot there was a spot in there it was you know it was like an uphill and then it had a crown and then it was kind of uh canted to the side and there was trees you had to dodge and so i waited for just the right wind to get in there but i needed wind where i could land but then also maneuver the airplane to back taxi and not flip when the wind's blowing too hard it catches me with a gust and then get out of there so i landed and probably I don't know, 70 feet. And I drug the thing like, you know, a false approach like seven times. And I said, okay, now I'm going to drag my wheels on it, you know, probably four or five more times. Like, okay, I got it. I feel confident. I'm getting a better warm, fuzzy feeling in my tummy every time I do this. <laughs> and I said, this time I'm going to drag my wheels on it. And if it feels money, I'm going to commit. But you got to make that like within a split second because you got 70 feet to land. Jeez. And I did that. And pulled the power, stick back, stood on the brakes, and I stopped before I hit the brush on the end. A really smart thing for pilots to do is to shut the airplane down once you've actually not done anything stupid and then go walk and, like, look for any obstacles or trees or holes or rocks or, you know, a tundra you may have missed. And then I kind of found a route I could walk where I could back taxi the airplane, did that, and I was able to scoot back a little more room and then chop down a few trees, walked over, grabbed the sheds, and I came out of there, and I felt like a badass. Oh so, my goodness. It was it was tight, but uh it was worth it. And so what really gets me excited is taking an airplane to a place where I'm pretty damn sure no one's ever taken an airplane. And yeah. I do it repeat I do it repeatedly. And to me, that's why the super cub was invented. It's not invented to go, you know, sit on a gravel bar that's two thousand feet long and take the Instagram pictures of your buddies mm -hmm. or, you know, go land on a two thousand foot strip and say, Oh, we're hunting, we're at camp. I'm like, that's not that's, you can do it, teach their own, I don't care. But for me, I want to take an airplane where it's not supposed to go mm. and figure it out and put myself into a really, really cool spot. I, I feel as though I read almost that exact statement on your Instagram. Isn't your bio something to the effect of, I land planes where they're not supposed to be? Yeah, I do. Yep. It worked out for my wife pretty well because I, I mean, not to brag, but I have a pretty good skill set. Um, I push the envelope, the airplane's insured, so all that stuff. <laughs> and I, the biggest thing you can do is not go spend money on an airplane and go buy an SQ-2. You need to spend a lot of time in an airplane. So I've, like, <laughs> I fly three to 400 hours a year in that cub. I used to fly commercially for the government, and I'd fly another three to 400 for them. So I'm in an airplane pretty much every day. You know, I'm going to go fly when we're done with this. I'm going to fly tomorrow, probably all weekend. And um, the more you can do it, the more it feels like a piece of your body. It doesn't feel like a foreign object when you get in and it's, it's kind of like, Oh, kind of nervous. How do you do this again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you something, Adam, because uh, you kind of, I don't know. I feel like now is a good time to, to ask you this. So I did a tiny bit of research and I found that. So back in 2021, there were at that point in time, um, I think it was like 1,225 civilian, civilian registered aircraft incidents or accidents and i'm kind of wondering you spend obviously a lot of time in an airplane and you feel comfortable in your airplane what do you do maybe mentally or physically that keeps you safe and makes you continue to be so confident 
Oh man, that's a loaded question. It's like solving world peace. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I think you start out. I like the saying, like when you start out as a pilot, you have an empty bag of skills, but you got mm-hmm. a whole bag of luck, right? And eventually, you're going to take poker chips out of the luck bag, and hopefully, those will convert into skill. And you're going to learn from mentors. You're going to learn from your fuck ups and everyone else's mm-hmm. of how do I not do that again? And when I make a mistake. Even now, I get, that's my wife, I get completely irate with myself because I envision, I play a movie in my head, how the landing is going to go, how mm-hmm. the takeoff's going to go, how the airplane will perform with this wind and this load and the train I'm on. And if it doesn't go exactly like I think it should, I'm getting pissed because I miscalculated. So I hold myself to a very, very extreme, almost ridiculous level of tolerances because I want right. to be perfect. And right. if I like something, I want to be damn good at it. I want to mm-hmm. be the very best I can be. I don't care about anyone else. I don't care about going to a stole competition and holding trophies. I'd rather be holding moose horns and holding trophies any day of the week. Mm-hmm. But I want to be the best I can be. So I push myself and I push my limits. And like when I go fly, I, I don't just go fly for an hour just to piss off and just burn gas. Like there's a mission involved, whether it's like looking for wolf tracks or you know, going out to gain proficiency before sheep hunting and landing 20 to 25 times within an hour just to make sure my muscle memory and the airplane and I are all working together. So I do all that stuff and I hold myself to a really high level of accountability. And I think that really helps. Right. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes sense. Like a, and... a lot of self-discipline. Like when we go and land on a runway that's pavement, which I hardly ever do because I don't want to you need to be right in the middle because if you say it's a 200 foot wide runway and you can't keep the center line between the main gear the tires, mm-hmm. well, how are you going to go to a strip that's only nine feet wide and your wings are almost hitting trees on the side, like a tiny little cub strip that's carved out. Is mm-hmm. that the time then you should say, okay, now I'm going to be precise. Now I'm going to hold it in the center. No, you're going to make yourself a perfect pilot in a controlled environment. And then mm-hmm. when you get to an off airport environment, you know, you have the skill set. It's not just like, oh, hope this works out. We'll see how it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've that, seen a lot of people, they just don't do that. Right, right. And I think that it's it's interesting. Like you're saying that and I'm in my head going into like archery and I shoot 3D archery. And it's like one of the things that you do is get good at right your controlled environment so that when you go out and you're faced with something else, you have at least... The, the part that you were able to control and learn like your self-discipline and your shot process and stuff like that you've got that all down packed now it's just to you know come up with the answers for the wind or the rain or the sun in your eyes or or whatever and so what you said makes a lot of sense yeah you just try to control all the variables you can and the human factors and there's mm-hmm. going to be variables outside of your control and you try and mitigate everything you can. But if you have your own skill set with your archery equipment or your airplane, everything, and you're confident in your ability, the uncontrollable factors are usually pretty minimal compared to lack of training. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of back up the bus here a little bit. Um, For so a lot of the people that are listening have probably never met you before and they might not know too much about you so adam can you give us a little backstory like you know where'd you grow up what got you into the outdoors or who was it that got you into the outdoors that kind of that sort of thing yeah so i'm almost uh 34 just shy of 34 i live in king salmon alaska so 
we're southwest Anchorage, a couple hundred miles, pretty remote, no roads or anything, just an airport, and you can take a barge into here in the summertime. Uh, wife and five adopted native kids. I got into the outdoors when I was three. I went with my dad on a deer hunt. I saw him shoot a deer, and I think after that, there was something inside of me that just kept growing, and I was bloodthirsty. I wanted to kill anything with a pulse. So there's rabbits, squirrels, <laughs> pheasants, ducks, geese. I got really into waterfowl in high school, tons of coyote calling. And my dad was really into small game because you get a lot of reps. You know, it's not just like one deer and you're done. You get a lot of opportunities. And when you're a kid, you need a lot of opportunities to screw it up. And Mm -hmm. so I got a lot of opportunities and learned and spent a lot of time with my dad outside and then got more into big game, met my wife, got even more into big game. I I was a pretty big deer hunter and then got more into elk when I met her. And then we moved to Alaska. And uh, yeah, a lot of people think it's just weird. I moved to Alaska and just started you know, killing a bunch of big animals and stuff, but I kind of had this plan set in motion. I, I'd been flying up here since I was like 19 in the summers and then going to school and college and stuff. And I had this plan to move up here by a super cub. And so I kind of already had the skill set, just moving here and buying the airplane was kind of the last piece that mm-hmm. I needed to put into that puzzle. And then it all worked out and now I'm living my dream that I always mm-hmm. wanted. Living the dream. Oh, yeah. Where, um, I'm not sure if you said this, where, where did you grow up? Oh, I think I missed that. It's North Idaho, so Post Falls up in the panhandle of Idaho. Oh, okay. 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 Mm-hmm. And so what would have been, when you're talking like a small game and stuff like that, what would have been kind of your most hunted small game in that area? Man, in that area, probably just grouse, okay, rabbits, stuff like that. Did some ducks and geese, um, got really into goose hunting in the into high school. But uh, we traveled a lot. So my dad would take me, you know, to southeast Washington, down to Lewis, Idaho, where it's Salmon River breaks and more open country. Did a lot of coyote calling. Like we were both really into that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool to convince something to come into a call and to watch yeah. the animal work and stuff. And it's really challenging. Coyotes are super smart and there's pressure down there. So did a lot of that. Yep. And then mm-hmm. started going to South Dakota quite a bit. Um, even like through college and hunting pheasants over there nice. because there's so many pheasants that it was worth going rather than mm-hmm. traveling, you know, three hours from our house. It'd be better to travel like 20 hours and right. stay for a week and just have a much better experience. That's mm-hmm. actually something that we've kind of been talking about was uh, like Southern North Dakota or South Dakota. Um, yeah. yep. We have a pointer and she's seven this year and she's actually just just kind of this year has like really started coming into her own as like just a better retriever she's always been a good pointing dog and a good hunter but she was never a good retriever and this year for some reason it just really started clicking so upland hunting has been really really fun with her this year and and less not stressful but like all the pieces are coming together and that just makes it more fluid and more fun and so we've been talking about doing uh, going down and, and going pheasant hunting as well. Mm-hmm. Don't do it unless you want to never hunt pheasants anywhere else again, because it will spoil <laughs> you. It's pretty damn good. Yeah. yeah, we have we have opportunities here in southern Manitoba, but it's uh, they're they're planted pheasant hunts. So yeah, it's, mm-hmm. you know it's it's not the same, but it's the same. It's really good for the dog. You know. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun doing it, and yeah, we've always just kind of fantasized about it. Southern Alberta, you can get some giant ringnecks, um, but the the climate there with the uh, with the Chinooks is just good for them here in Manitoba. Everything just dies. We get grouse that live, but you know, we yeah, get their, pheasants don't do well here. Not, not in the yep. but yeah, pheasants yeah. just die. And like Brandon said, it's just not the same doing planted birds. Like they're, 
you know, it's, it's good to get out and get the reps and get her, you know, uh, the reps for her on scent cones of different kinds of birds, but they just don't, uh, they don't fly and they don't bust as good as wild birds that have that exercise and, you know, the lung and the muscle capacity to fly up and bust out and kind of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a lot of late season and it's, it's totally, I mean, I've, I've hunted planted birds over dogs a lot, but you just, you have to call it what it is. Like you're hunting planters. You're not like yeah. on an actual pheasant hunt yeah. and man, late season, like sometimes when you get snow, I've picked up pheasants out of snow drift with my bare hands. They hold yeah. so tight and yeah. sometimes they're just, they're blowing out. So we had to, we had to go to like thicker cover um, and kind of hunt on the edge of like the cattail sloughs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Hard for dogs to get through cattails. We had a Springer Spaniel and he could do it, but with the snow and everything, but man, those pheasants pack into that stuff and they hold yeah, so well. tight. Like it was like flocks of pheasants coming out sometimes and it's so thick. They can't run like they would in CRP or sagebrush or anything. And so they were, they're holding till like the dog's almost picking them up. My dog picked up a few and like, yeah, yeah just yeah. incredible, That's, incredible it, hunting. That's exactly the things that have happened here. Uh, last year, I think it was Bren when I hunted with the girls. Mm-hmm. I think it was last year and we, we did plant it. And, uh, this, that's exactly what happened with Rosie was she had pointed in a, and she was right on top of it. And he kind of, instead of busting up and out, he started trying to run from her and then he's trying to run through the snow and she just caught up to him and grabbed him. Yep. So that's not, I don't want her to know how to do that, but it. I mean, you can't control everything so no at some point you'll let their instinct just kind of take over on that and take the yeah. bird oh well yeah not super rare in like south dakota and stuff but i mean it, it has happened but a lot of times they're they're getting up quite a ways away because they're smart you know they've been hunted and especially in the late season but after that you don't have a lot of pressure um there might be a few deer hunters around and stuff i think you actually have to start hunting after 10 a.m. because they let the deer hunters kind of do their thing oh, wow. um mm. and uh which is sweet you don't have to be up super early and stuff but yeah there's yeah. plenty of pheasants over there all over and a lot of and a lot of public too to right hunt. yeah i heard that a lot of public land yeah yep yeah. lots of it that's nice i was wondering um you had mentioned that you flew did you say for the government um mm-hmm I don't want to use the wrong word if that's not what it is. Um, but so that was, a, that was an employment position. So what, what, why, how, where did you get the idea to become a pilot? How did that start for you? Oh man. Uh, I think I was 17. I was working my first job as a camp bitch on the new Shigak river for, <laughs> um, they say camp helper, but you're, you're the camp bitch. I mean, you're digging shitters, you're cutting firewood, you're working 18 hour days. I didn't get paid. I did that first summer for a place called Jake's Nishiak Salmon Camp, which is ironic because it changed hands. And now one of my buddies actually owns it that I'm friends with up here and he's an outfitter and, um, small world. Crazy how that worked out. Mm -hmm. But that was my first job. I have a picture of me standing in like neoprene hip boots on a turbine otter on amphib. So like the wheels come out of the floats and stuff. And okay. I just had this shitty grin on my face because I'm like helping the bush pilot load the bags into this badass bush plane. I was like, dude, is this what drugs are like? Because this is amazing. <laughs> and uh, I went back and I told my parents and just like. If you're listening to this episode, we know you love local and so do we. That's why we're going to encourage you to check out your local co-op. Co-op is in over 600 communities across Western Canada with over 2 million members. Co-ops are a member-driven organization 
that serve the local community. You can check out co-ops for all your food, fuel, home and construction, as well as agricultural needs. A membership costs you $10 to get in, and you're going to see that back in equity. You don't need a membership to shop at co-op, but you'd be missing out on all the equity and most importantly your say and how that company runs. For groceries, if you want to shop online, you can check it out online at shop.crs and select markets. There's hundreds of local products sourced and packaged all across Western Canada and even free cookies for children in store at the deli counter. If you're looking at a home and building experience, they have local experts available to help with any plant, large or small, and free home and garage blueprints available for online download. Their gas stations are not just a great place to stop for fuel, but also for snacks and a recharge. They're available all across Western Canada, voted the cleanest bathrooms, they have full service at most locations, and car washes at most locations. On the egg side, Co-op's been in the business since 1930 and has continued to lead the way in not just energy products needed for seeding, harvesting, and everything in between, but also in the growing inventory of high-quality products, including crop inputs and feed that Co-op manufactures and distributes. Co-op's private label production selection is growing every year, providing growers with the high-quality products they expect from the name they trust. Co-op also offers a range of fuel, lubricant, and propane products, and also provides farm buildings, grain bins, bulk fuel, fuel tanks, livestock equipment, fencing, and heaters. Wherever you are, be sure to check out your local co-op because they have it all. That was the coolest experience in my next life. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a bush pilot. And they said, "Well, you're only 17. It's not like too late. You can do that now." Yeah. So I got an introductory flight. Um, it's overwhelming because you have to like fly the airplane and do stuff and talk on the radios. They throw a lot at you, but I feel like I had pretty good hand-eye coordination. Um, knowing that now, I didn't feel good after the fact. I thought it was a mess, <laughs> and I liked it. And so then at that point, I kind of did a fast track roll all through my ratings, uh, all the way through flight instructor in like nine months. And um, I knew I wanted to be a commercial pilot. I didn't just want to be a pilot for recreation or anything like that. Mm. And then, um, man, after that, I was a fishing guide for a lot of high-end lodges. And that kind of segued into flying for them. So I was a fishing guide slash pilot, flying a lot of beavers. Built up a couple thousand hours doing that um, through different avenues. Did some air taxi work. And then I had the qualifications for a National Park Service job at camp in King Salmon. And there's not many full-time year-round flying gigs in Alaska. And so I wanted that one pretty bad. Wasn't sure I wanted to live in King Salmon. I'd been through this area a lot because I've worked for a lot of lodges down here. And uh, I said, whatever, make it work and try it. And I had a wife that was on board. We were working in North Dakota in the oil field and uh, working our asses off. Didn't have a lot of time to play and do anything. Mm -hmm. Took a huge pay cut, came to work for the feds. almost cut my salary in half from what I was making because I was making really good money in North Dakota. And uh, cost of living was really high. Took a pay cut, but the quality of life went way up, and I bought a Super Cub. And then I worked for them for five years and then realized I didn't like – my boss was great, but I didn't like having a boss. I didn't like the federal government. Really started to dislike the federal government after COVID because Mm -hmm. the the flying missions really kind of took a halt. And I did the job not because I liked working with a bunch of hippies or anything like that and a bunch of Democrats, but I liked to, <laughs> I liked the flying. I really enjoy the challenge of the flying and the different missions. And I'm the kind of guy, I want to get a lot of shit done. And at the end of the day, I'm like, okay, I moved 5,000 pounds and 20 people. 
throughout the National Park Service today, that's pretty cool. That makes me feel fulfilled. fulfilled. And when I couldn't do that anymore or it was heavily restricted, mm-hmm. I was like, I just became bitter. And my wife's like, why don't you just quit? And so I did. That's amazing. Like, why don't you just quit? Yeah, okay. See ya. I've always been the type of guy, like, check your shit at the door. Like, don't have yeah. a bad day. Like, I don't want to come in if you're fighting with your wife. Like, that's not my problem. So you need to be a grown up. We work together. And I was kind of getting salty and just pissed off. My wife's like, you know, you kind of need to take your own advice. Like, why don't you just quit? And I'm like, well, this is my dream job. This is a career. Everyone, everyone said, don't do it. This is a bad move. And then a couple of buddies who are entrepreneurs and like, dude, you, you'll land on your feet and do something else. My wife has a thriving business. And uh, yeah, I quit uh, right on the 4th of July, um, 22. So just over a year, a little over a year ago. And best decision you ever made? Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult because you don't know where your paycheck's coming from. But I've made more, I yeah. think, already in the first, even less than the first year than I would working for the Park Service. Because you have a lot more opportunity and things just kind of fall into your lap and different yeah. money streams and different things like that. And I just I get to spend a lot more time with my kids. I wake up like a normal day and make my kids mm-hmm. breakfast, take them to school, come back, maybe do a phone call or a meeting, work on a project or two help my wife sometimes with her business if she needs something, run some errands, pick my kids up, um, probably shoot some guns and fly airplanes somewhere in that throughout the week. And um, I get to make my own schedule and I get to go hunting when I want. And I don't have to ask a boss, dear dad, may I please go hunting this week? Mm-hmm. Pretty please. <laughs> Pretty that please. never That never sat well with me. And yeah. that's the truth that a lot of people have to do that. They have to ask their boss mm-hmm. for time off. A lot of guys get two weeks off um, their whole year. And one is spent with family going to Disneyland. The other one is spent going to their deer camp. And that just, uh, just rubs me raw. And so right. I wanted something better. So does your new, like your new job, um, what you do now, is that mostly centered around flying as a stream of income or is that your stream of income? And then you just happen to have, way more time uh, and availability to fly and hunt. Yeah, I didn't actually do hardly any commercial flying this year. Um, I kept everything available. If I was to jump in and fill in for a few people and I got a few offers, it just didn't line out because I have a lot of things in the mix. My wife runs those retreats up here. Mm-hmm. takes up a lot of the summer. We did some family retreats. We were both pretty active on that. Um, but I, I trap a lot. And so I sold nice. a lot of fur this winter, pick up a few moose sheds I've talked about. Uh, when I was trying to wreck my plane earlier this year. So I'll sell a few moose sheds, um, even though the market kind of crashed for that. And they're not worth a whole lot now. Um, but between that and then I own a couple of Airbnbs and manage a few other properties. Nice. And then I bought a piece of commercial real estate with my business partner this year that we're going to develop into something we're not sure yet. So I got a lot of things kind of working together. Um, and then, yeah, biggest thing I'm known for is selling dick bones. I started pulling dick bones <laughs> out of wolves this year. And, uh, I had someone ask me the other day, I think it was uh, a doctor or someone on a flight, like, so what do you do? I said, oh, I sell dicks. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've gotten pretty used to, like, just just throwing it out there and everything. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, technically it's called a baculum, but it's the penis bone of an animal. Wolves, coyotes, fox, coons, bears have them. And mm-hmm. I kind of got known for slinging a lot of dicks. So if you need a dick, <laughs> I'm your guy. That's Good hilarious. Merchant. I do. And I do remember seeing a post of yours and and it was i don't remember what it was but it was it was big um and it's just like that's hilarious <laughs> i didn't realize that you actually sell them 
I got a waiting list for people that want wolf dick bones. <laughs> I was just going to ask you if it's Come like on. lucrative Come business. On. This is hilarious. So this is, I mean, call it what you want, but like being an entrepreneur is having <laughs> a successful entrepreneur, in my opinion, is having multiple income streams where they're not mm-hmm. relative on one. Uh, usually mm-hmm. people are really successful in real estate. So I've tried to get more into real estate and buy properties and manage different properties and things that are going to have a good rate of return. Um, but yeah, I was taking wolf. So wolf hides worth like six, seven, 800 bucks. And then skulls worth a couple hundred. And then I'm like, well, I'm throwing the carcass out. Might as well chop this dick off too. And, uh, <laughs> I was selling those for a hundred bucks. And so I, I made over like a thousand or 1500 bucks just by selling dick bones last year. <laughs> it was, hilarious. it was weird, but um, it all adds up and I'm not gay, but a hundred bucks, a hundred bucks. Hundred bucks, hundred bucks. Yeah. So, why, like, why are people buying this? Is what I need to know. Like, is there some kind of, um, you know, like, uh, folklore, witchy something or other that, like, they're super special or they bring good luck or something like that? There's some like native heritage ritual and stuff like that. Um, but I would say the majority is they just think it's funny. Maybe yeah. I've branded wolf dicks pretty good and they just think it's kind of hilarious or I'll bundle it in when they buy the hide. I'm like, hey, I'll throw this pecker in for just discount too. Um, <laughs> I'll make you, make you a bundle. Um, and uh, I think the majority of guys want to get one and they're like five inches long, like, I don't know, three-eighths <laughs> diameter. And they just want to like make their buddy an old-fashioned and like, here's stir stick, go ahead. And they're like, oh, what is this? And their drink, like... Oh, that's a dick bone out of a wolf in the sky in Alaska. And uh, mostly kind of a gag like that, I think, you know, but there's multiple uses. That's uh, it's just, it's just amazing. You, you cracked the code on, on the market and what uh, what the world needed. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was dick dicks, more dicks. That's, that's yeah, like exactly. the most entrepreneur, <laughs> entrepreneur move that you could even think of. You know, what do, what do they need? Dicks. Are you sure? Well, yeah, it worked. <laughs> All right. I, I have a, a crazy idea for you, but I don't know that I can say it on this podcast, so I'd have to message it we're, to you we're later. At, we're, at, we're at dick bones, and then you can say it about yeah, I know. This is this takes it a little further. That's awesome. <laughs> I need to get some more dicks. I need to, like, find supply <laughs> and talk to some other trappers and stuff, because I've seen ads for guys in, like, trapper magazines and buy them, but uh, yeah. I need to get more of a supply. You know, if I'm going to be known as the dick bone king, I got I to gotta really step up. <laughs> That, that might be a bit of a sound bite for the uh for the post later on <laughs> i need yeah. to get more dick yeah huh. <laughs> no homo no yeah. Ho- yeah we'll put the no homo on. <laughs> hashtag <Yeah. laughs> preface it with that but yeah. uh yeah that's just that's super weird something just kind of fell into my lap it's it's totally hilarious and stuff and, and i got people sending me pictures of, like well, they're wolf dick bones and they're bears and stuff so it's kind of mm-hmm. catching on you can say i'm kind of a big deal oh my goodness <laughs> yeah <laughs> Jesus. I, I don't know how we got sidetracked on that but yeah that's that's one of my income streams and i i kind of just do whatever i want and mm-hmm. i find ways to make money i guess it's kind of a weird way to put it but i but i feel like that is very much a oh, i don't even know how to say it like when you walk away from being employed by another person like the government or corporation or whatever when once you decide to like walk away from that i feel like that was something that was done quite a bit you know in our past and that's exactly what happened was people were like no longer do i want to be a part of this and they just found ways to make everything work i mean pretty much i just 
my wife's way smarter than I am, especially when it comes to business. And she's like, do you want to invest in the federal government when you're on your deathbed? And be like Joe Biden's I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks for your service. You're easily replaceable. Mm-hmm. But I'm not replaceable as a dad. I want to spend more time with my kids. I don't want to spend a half hour with my kids at night. And that's it. And I want to invest in myself. And so I want to invest in my own real estate, my own investments, all other stuff. And um, I'm going to bet on myself 100% of the time. And I'm not replaceable at home. And so I think it was a really, really good move. And just overall, quality of life, the freedom, the levels of stress, like nothing. Like today is a great example. Like my wife took the kids to school. I went and finished oil change in my airplane, shot the seventh saw, made sure it was tack driving. I'm going to go shoot at a thousand on rocks today to make sure I'm dialed in for a caribou hunt. And then there's a pack of eight wolves I found the other day. And I'm going to go, I think they killed a caribou because they look pretty fat. And I'm going to go with fresh snow and see if I can find their tracks and maybe put snares around the caribou carcass and then hurry back and get back for parent teacher conferences. Mm-hmm. If I had a regular job, like all of that stuff that I would have to cram into today, that's yeah. important for my lifestyle and what I want to do, um, potential eight dick bones down there. Um, that would have to wait for <laughs> that would have to all wait for the weekend, right? Yeah. And so like you get a lot less accomplished of what you want to do. Um mm-hmm. so yeah, maybe people see us screwing off and different things like that, but I am literally living the freaking dream. Yeah, it's that's, awesome. That's amazing. Those opportunities come by when you improve your quality of life. You know, we had Chelsea Hansler on here and uh you know she just moved, yeah, absolutely just busted out into the woods with, with her husband there and they're just like, Yep. We didn't even have running water. You know, we hauled it in a pail from the river because we just couldn't stand doing it anymore. So they just yeah. bugged out. And that's, you know, it's we get more and more guests that just did that and the commitment. And uh, a correlation of all these stories is that quality of life improved, the opportunities improved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it's not always going to work out. You're not always going to, you know, come up with a dick bone idea. <laughs> but, you know, you set yourself up for that and you open yourself up for that. And I think that's... That's what more people should be doing. Yeah. But I mean, just look at Chelsea and the painting thing. I've become, become acquaintances with her through my wife's retreat and stuff. And like, mm-hmm. like just that her hobby of painting has turned into more lucrative avenues one after another. And they just yeah. kind of, it's weird. They just it's like a layers of an onion. It just kind of keeps opening itself up. But if you sit here in your day to day job and you never bet on yourself and you just wonder, Oh, what might be? Cause you live in this little world of security that stuff's never going to show itself to you. And you can sit there and feel secure, but your life's going to suck. And so I'm really glad I made the decision. And I have my wife to thank for that because she's like, you just need to leave. Like, you'll figure out what to do. We own Mm -hmm. a couple Airbnbs. You can manage that and stuff like that. But it's terrifying as a man Mm -hmm. to leave this quote unquote career, not just a job. This Mm -hmm. is a career that I've worked my ass off for. And all my buddies who fly are jealous. I got three weeks paid vacation. Well, now Mm -hmm. I can take whatever vacation I want. I don't have to ask. When I went sheep this year my wife said when are you going to be home and i said when we're done and those three mm-hmm. words are the most revitalizing things you can ever say because i don't have an agenda and mm-hmm. i got a plane full of tools and gas and a pocket full of tags when i'm done i'll come home mm-hmm. 52 weeks of paid vacation <laughs> yeah you gotta make some money and some somewhere in there and stuff but i'm trying to get better at like having income that like makes money in your sleep like airbnbs yeah. are good for that rental, yeah, rental like cars pass, stuff are good for that. income Mm-hmm. Yeah, like our objective, I think, as people who hunt is to make money in your sleep so we can spend time with friends and family hunting and you mm-hmm. still generate revenue while you're That's out there. That's right. Love that. I'm going to steer us back a little bit. I was thinking of this. And so being, you know, Brennan and I being a pair of flatlanders over here, we really don't 
understand or know the actual like logistics of doing backcountry hunts that include planes. Um, can you explain like why why would you want to use a plane for backcountry hunting and how does that like how does that change things from just like a normal for us is like hop in a vehicle hop in a side by side and scoot out to the tree stand or a blind and hop in and then come come back home and it's like super easy for us so how how does it change things and how does that look for you to do what you do well, I would love to use a vehicle. We went to Elkhart, Idaho, and they had this thing called a pickup, and that was cool because it's got a heater, and you can that was cool. go to places with more food and stuff like that. And around. Um, but the fact is, in Alaska, there's only like three roads. There's huge, huge roads, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of Alaska is roadless. Right. Um, and so once again, I was looking at this, playing this plan out in my head, and I'm like, well, I'm a pilot. I know how to fly airplanes. I could pay people to transport me and then you know hope they'd come pick me up on the day i wanted or if i shoot something early or i could bet on myself and do it all myself and i don't want to rely on other people so that's kind of what i set into motion i said i'm going to be my own air service and i'm going to go where i want to go when i want to and if we kill day one we can come out day two or we can stay three days later if we need to run home and grab a heater or more food we can and mm-hmm. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the number one priority because it's my airplane, my hunt, my friends, my family, that kind of deal. So there's a lot that goes into it. Where we live in Alaska, um, more of the interior stuff isn't quite as windy, um, but coastal Alaska, western Alaska, it's pretty severe weather, and so you really have to play the weather and really respect it because uh, I don't care what you have on an airplane, like tied in or whatever, it'll rip itself out of the ground if the winds are too strong and. There goes your $100,000 ride home. So that kind of sucks. Um, so you play the weather a lot. You bring a lot of stuff. but And you, you got to pack light because Super Cup is pretty small. And uh, it's just cool because you are completely betting on yourself. You're completely self-sufficient. And there's it's a pretty cool feeling to go out in the middle of nowhere, land an airplane. You're pretty sure there's that's a spot no one's ever landed an airplane, hunt somewhere, animals really aren't that afraid of humans because you're in a pretty remote place and you've put your airplane, your skill set to use to get into this spot where the animals are a lot of pressure and you're by yourself in the middle of nowhere and there's a lot of risk and danger and you kill something, you pack it out um, or even better and land the airplane right next to where you kill it. That's pretty cool. Happened a few times and uh, then fly home and you're completely successful and it was all because of you. That's a really cool feeling. Right. Yeah. Is the, so flying a plane, obviously planes are pretty expensive. Is is fuel and all that, the, the stuff that goes into the maintenance of the plane, is it really cost effective to be hunting uh, that way? Is it just, uh, you know, this is what's available and we can just do it? What What's what's the deal with oh, that? I mean, if you add it up like price per pound, like wild game, what it costs to actually kill that thing? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could buy beef and ship it in from Anchorage or different things like that. But mm-hmm. for me, I mean, I spend 30 to 35 grand a year on Avgas probably. Um, you can buy some cheaper airplanes for 35 grand. So I want the quality of life. Like you only get one chance at this. And Tan and I, our motto is like, we want to have once in a lifetime experiences mm-hmm. like monthly, you know, if I go find eight mm-hmm. wolves today that have killed a caribou and put 40 snares around it and come back and have the whole pack in 10 days. To me, that's a once in a lifetime experience. That's really, really cool. And I look forward to doing something like that. And you can't pay anyone in the state to go and do that for you. No one will do that. So mm-hmm. I have to have my own transportation to have that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wild. I Googled a bit. Oh, of I was just going to say. Like, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to step no, on No, no. I was just going to spit out a 
uh, stupid statistic like one in 78 alaskans is a pilot or something like that's just absolutely there's insane a lot to me here. or the sky's like just crammed with planes yeah not so much in like the rural areas and stuff during like bear and moose season it gets pretty busy and stuff with outfitters and different people hunting but mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of pilots there's a lot of village pilots that don't even have a license they just fly airplanes and they know how to fly um oh, wow. not even like registered um yeah crazy i know you got that shocked look on your face right now. Because like, yeah. really? I am. Yeah. I'm I'm sitting there thinking, like, I get it because there's not a lot of roads. So that makes sense. But, but like, okay, out here we have, like, air traffic control. And you can't, like, fly a plane unless you're, I don't know, I don't want to say registered with them. But, like, you can't just, you can't just land a plane on an airstrip without, without air traffic knowing that you're there. So if you're all flying planes over in Alaska and just just out there flying like how do you control who's where and and not like get into accidents with each other in well, the air rule number rule number one i would guess for a village pilot is you don't go where there's air traffic control and you stick away <laughs> from a controlled airfield and you're in the middle of nowhere you're living on a homestead you're living in a village and you jump in the airplane and you say yeah cub one two three taking off or you don't say anything you know you don't say and anything you go do your thing yeah and, and just, just don't run airplane. into each other there's been guys that have got caught with thousands of hours and they don't even have a license. They're really good at flying. They own multiple airplanes, never even got a license, just grew up flying in the bush and that's how wow. it is, you know? And and when you say get caught, like what happens? They just keep slapping oh, you a little usually, fine? No, it can be pretty big because it's federal with the FAA and stuff like that. So I always people that are, that are doing this, you know, like I'm a flight instructor, so I can like sign a 90 day certificate for a person to continue soloing, quote unquote, their airplane under a student pilot certificate. And I said, why don't you just take the check ride, get a license, and then you're good for two years. And then every two years, you need to fly with someone to get a flight review. Um, That's what I try and promote people to do. So you're actually a certified pilot. The piece Mm -hmm. of paper doesn't make you a good pilot. It just says you are, and it allows you a lot more freedoms and stuff. But uh, there's a lot of people that go rogue. And is where it is. It's kind of happens, you know. Yep. Wow. Look at the farm. One more thing on the financial side, though. Like when you're looking now, it makes a lot more sense to be a pilot because there's to do a do-it-yourself moose hunt in Alaska. It's like six grand to fifteen thousand, and that's an unguided drop-off moose hunt. And usually, those people are requiring two people to go. So you and your buddy got to come up with twelve, all the way up to thirty grand, and that's just for the airplane to drop you off in said spot. Wow. His spot, he's picking, and he's going to pick you up when he has time available and weather, and it works out for his schedule. Mm-hmm. So a lot more sense to, I guess, be your own air service, do stuff, and the things I do, like I said, you wouldn't – I mean, you can't run a trap line with a Super Cub and charter some guy to do that. I mean, I'm sure if you were a multi-billionaire, maybe you mm-hmm. could have someone under contract, but it makes a lot more sense to own your own airplane and go get a bunch of dicks. <laughs> so... <laughs> Pick up your dicks on your own. Don't get other people That's to do right. it for you. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so cost. Yeah, I can see that being cost effective. Like quality of life effective more than anything. That's more yeah. more important than dollars and cents for sure. Yeah, pretty much. I spend a ton of money on airplanes, probably over 50000 a year, and I can invest that and make way more money on a rate of return and invest in real estate or rentals or whatever but yeah like i said you only got one shot like you're not going to sheep hunt for forever you're not going to be out in there cold trapping forever and i want to do it when i can yep yep that's come up a lot recently like it kind of resonates a bit you said you were in the oil field there and uh, i'm definitely still very deep in the oil field and trying to come home a lot more i just spent a project here i haven't been home since 
the month of April, and I just got back two weeks ago. So yeah. it's it's oh, man. definitely uh yeah definitely uh kind of destroys your life a little bit. There's no sugar coating it. It just mm -hmm. takes everything from you. So <clears throat> it is uh it's nice to hear and talk to talk to people that have made the commitment and just went out and did it. Yeah, that's it's pretty admirable, and it gives a guy a bit of confidence. You know, hearing your guys' stories, yours and Tana's and Chelsea's and her husband, and you know, the more people I talk to, the more. Uh, more of a reality i'd like to make that it's double-edged sword dude a lot of good money yep. and oil though that's the hard part to walk away from yeah but i mean get yourself in a position save your damn money right that's uh, kind of what yep. you gotta do <laughs> exactly yep make some memories and speaking of memories is there like a, a the most memorable hunt that you might have flown into is there anything that just jumps out at you i know tana told us a couple of cool move, move stories there where she had one charger have you had a similar experience like that Mm, no everything tries to eat or breed tana when she's out in the woods <laughs> nothing really comes after me man probably I, I get asked this all the time probably one of the most memorable was you move to alaska you got to be here for a year to become a resident and once you're a resident you can hunt sheep mountain goats brown bears and mm -hmm. i can take a next to kin relative so tana's oldest brother travis and i had planned on doing a brown bear hunt on the alaska peninsula and fully self-supported in the springtime and some of the biggest bears in the world blew down, talked to a few people, got into a place that had a pretty good corridor for like bears moving through and a place I could keep the airplane. And I was the first shooter and I ended up shooting a bear. It was like six miles away. We saw him. We, he looked big, but he would like walk hundred yards and fall asleep because we think he was just out of the den. Walked over there. Alaska is really difficult. It's still difficult to like range find something. That's, oh, it's only a thousand yards up there. We'll be there in an hour. And three hours mm. later, you're still not there. And it's like, how is the train so difficult to navigate here? It's crazy. I finally get there. I shoot this bear at like 1145, almost midnight, because you can see. And, you know, we had talked and joked about on the way over there, we had had a buddy that had slept in a brown bear hide when the fog rolled in way, way before Onyx and everything came about and didn't have GPS. And he just like got fogged in. He had to roll up in a brown bear hide and sleep till the fog rolled off the next morning. And we skinned this thing out till 3, 3.30 in the morning, ate food, and it's like, okay, we're going to have six hours to walk back through the alders. We're exhausted in the dark, or we'll sleep under this bear because we're basically at the foot of a glacier. We have puffy jacket, puffy pants, and that's it in our rain gear. So we put everything on, slept under this bear hide, woke up at 6 in the morning. I really thought I was going to die from hypothermia. It's the coldest I've ever been. And uh, started doing like sprints uphill just to try and wake up and warm up. And then we had walked across some frozen snow, like creeks that were blown in with snow the day before. And so our tracks kind of set up and, you know, we talked about the hunts that hurt and, you know, I'm 250 on a good day after I take a piss in the morning and <laughs> this bear hide weighed 127 pounds. I strapped it into a Kuyu pack somehow, ended up snapping that pack just because the load was crazy. I had a bunch of other gear. I was probably close to 150 on that one. And the first quarter mile, we crossed on our same tracks. And Travis is ahead of me. He has most of my gear, the skull and everything. And I think both rifles. And I have my trekking poles. I always put my hands through trekking poles. I still do just because you have a better grip and kind of wraps on your wrist. And I kind of fell through up to my waist. I got back up because the snow had kind of froze where our tracks were, but not fully. And now I'm like a 400-pound person. You can see where this is going. I walk through again, a couple more steps, and I go through. But now I'm going through like nipple deep for those trekking poles. They didn't go through because the snow basket hits the trekking pole. Oh. My right arm, my right arm goes like I don't know behind my left shoulder or something like that. Oh. Dislocates the shoulder. Oh, I no. try and roll roll out of the pack. Dislocate my arm, and uh, right off the 
right off the bat. Like I was six mile pack out with a huge, huge pack. And uh, that sucked. That hurt. I rolled back on it. Luckily, it went back into place. <sighs> so obviously it hurt, but it wasn't out of like out of the joint or anything like that. I popped it back in, put the pack on, said, well, it's no time for crying at bear camp. Better get started. And so we, we <laughs> kept going. And I don't know, like 12 hours later, we were back at the airplane. We threw the bear in and uh, went home, grabbed a shower, threw the bear in a freezer, grabbed a pizza and came right back. And then he shot an even bigger bear like oh three God. days later. So we shot two Boone and Crockett bears in five days, dislocated my shoulder. It sucked. It hurt. Flying out of there, the weather was just like, I don't know, top three shittiest weather I've ever flown in. Oh and when you look goodness. back on that hunt, I was like, man, that one was a wild adventure. And the first time I had ever big game hunted in Alaska as a resident for brown bears. And it was just a really cool experience to share with my brother. And it's going to be a hard one to top. Mm -hmm. Wow. I've had a Gosh. lot of cool hunts. I've had a lot of really, really big Boone and Crockett animals I've shot. But that one was just really special for whatever reason. Probably because it, it sucked. It hurt. It was hard. It was cold. It was wet slept to the base of a glacier it was, it was 20 degrees and it was blowing 30 knots you know like mm -hmm. it sucked mm -hmm. but man that stuff makes you strong jeez mm -hmm. yeah 100%. can't can't say i've ever had a hunt like that <laughs> can't wait for next time yeah <laughs> yeah we walk out the door and went to the tree stand it's about 300 yeah. yards away yeah yeah it's not, special. <laughs> not yeah they're, that, like they're special, was... but they're they're definitely. I guess everybody has their own level of and their own level of hard or their own level of like success, right? And mm -hmm. was that uh, was that pre dick bone era? That was pre dick bone. I didn't even cut the dicks off those bears, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Just imagine you've become the bane of every uh, <laughs> every creature with a dick bone in Alaska. <laughs> That's why they He's run coming away. Coming for me. Coming for <laughs> yeah. those decks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man, um, Adam, I was looking at your Instagram um, before we before we got on the podcast, and I noticed a bunch of really big rams on. Is it rams or sheep? Or Either is it the one. Same thing. Same yeah, thing. Same one. Same thing. Okay, because goats are the different. Yeah, yeah. Got a couple now. Goats. One okay. actually. Got a couple. So there was a, there's a picture, I think it's like one of your pinned photos is a pretty big ram. And I, I wanted to ask this because I, we, like, we don't have, we've never hunted those. I know nothing there. I see this comment about double broomed and what, it, what is this? Why is this special? What is broomed? And yeah. So yeah, in Alaska for a sheep to be legal, it has to be full curl. So you're looking from the side, it pretty much has to make like a 360 degree curl where the horn tip comes and meets the base. Oh. It has to be eight, eight years old, which is a really mature ram, or it has to be broomed or broken on both sides. Um, I've shot a couple sheep that are broomed just on one side. And then the one I shot this year was like a really, really big, exceptional doll sheep. And he was broomed on both sides. He was 11 years old. He was really heavy. He just kind of had it all. So just kind of like an old warrior. And it's something I've always wanted. You know, I, I would much rather take a super nasty, non-typical animal versus like a really pretty symmetrical one any day of the week. I want kind of the freaky ones that are weird and old and ugly. And that thing just had it all, carried the mass really deep and super, super big sheep. Um, on the flip side, I'm not like a soup. Guys are into sheep. Hunting. That's like all they do. They are just super fit. They look forward to sheep all year. I do it. I enjoy it. It's a really cool experience. 
Um, you get like 70 pounds of meat off a sheep, so you don't really get that much. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a really rewarding experience when it happens because you push your body physically a lot and mentally to get to where these sheep live day after day. Um, and so, yeah, that's what a double broomer is. And then I had that one pinned on there because I think you're supposed to pin your top three pictures and make you seem like a total badass. So I want to look cool. I want to look cool for the gram, obviously, because I care so much about what strangers think. Um, and then I have a, <laughs> and then I have a bighorn on there too. I drew an Idaho bighorn sheep tag and ended up shooting a Boone and Crockett Ram down there. Nice. which was a huge, huge sheep in the area that's not known for giant sheep. And I walked down there and I got a lead from a buddy that said, hey, a big one was missed in this drainage. I walked down there and a couple of days before the season found him and walked in there first light in the opener and killed him. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Pretty cool. What would you, so what, what species would you say, because I'm going to follow up with this, what species would you say has been like your most memorable to hunt? Oh man, I'm pretty known for killing big moose. I really get into moose. I'd, I'd flown up here for, you know, 10 years looking at them out of the window of a beaver and like, oh man, I could land a super chub over there. Or look at that big bull. He's got cows or this one's about to shed velvet and just the biggest deer species in North America. It's really cool to have an animal that big. And this year I, I shot my first one with a bow. So that's really cool being that close. I've called in plenty of moose for bow hunters and we've shot a bunch of big ones with a bow. But this year I was actually able to leave the gun in the tent, which is very hard for me to do and only take the bow. And I ended up shooting a 64 inch bull. And that was, that was pretty special. So yeah, probably, probably moose is probably what I'm most known for. And I get, I get really into it. I mean, I, I fly all year looking at them. I pick up their sheds. I see where they're out in the winter. I see where the wolves kill them. I mean, I'm keeping tabs on them, almost like a biologist, if you will. And uh, I really like moose. They're cool. Um, Brennan and I are both pretty bow, – bow hunting is our, I would say, our favorite. So I was going to ask you about, like, you know, your most memorable moose hunt then. But now I feel like we need to hear in great detail – uh, maybe to we've we've gone an hour in here, so maybe like a good story to end Modern off our detail. podcast episode on moose. Yes, on your on your bow moose. Okay, so moose are tough. They have really really good hearing, but just like any animal, you try and capitalize on their weakness. And moose are weak into the rut because we're going places that hopefully haven't seen a lot of pressure. There's not a lot of airplanes around. We're not hunting necessarily near an airstrip or anything like that. Um, so my number one with my hunting partner is to, and he's a strict bow hunter and won't pick up a gun, even it's the world record. And we've killed some big moose because of that. He has a lot of discipline and patience and he's a really good bow hunter. Nice. The way to do that is to find a bull glassing with a cow and he will stay with that cow until he breeds her and he'll breed her multiple times. And once they're in the zone and they're like locked up together, you have to wait sometimes for a day or two for the wind to get right or for them to be in a good spot. And then we make a stock and we get as close as you physically can, hopefully within a hundred yards. Sometimes you end up closer and you're right on top of them. You sneak in there. Usually the wind's blowing. So you have some cover and then you position the shooter in this case, me in a lane where you're going to pull that bull through. And we had seen this bull for two days. I glassed him and he was kind of roaming and just kind of doing his thing, but there was a cow and a calf where he was. And usually I don't give a whole lot of thought about a cow and a calf because like, I don't think she's going to be a super willing, wet participant that's ready to party. Um, <laughs> but this bull kind of linked up and he was just kind of shadowing it, like within a couple hundred yards. 
And then one day he's like, boom, he's with him. I'm like, okay, dude, it's time. What do you think? And he's like, let's go. So it's three miles over there, which for Moose usually is not something anyone would do. But with airplanes and skill sets, you know, we, we know different places we can land to once we shoot a moose over there, we can get pretty close to an airplane because you're not going to pack a moose three miles. That's full on retard. Don't do that. Crazy talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, literally. Like you'd only do that once. It's stupid. So we know there's some spots we can land. And ironically, I shot this moose like five yards from where my buddy shot a moose like two years prior. So we go over there. We think it's probably the same cow. We think it might even been the calf that was the offspring from the bull that he ended up killing because this bull was with her for a while. And we get in there. We get over there. Everything changes once you're there. And so you got to find the moose again. And we could not see him, but we're like a quarter mile away. You don't want to let yourself, your presence be known because sometimes you call that far away, they'll run away. And so finally, we just see the tops of the bull's antlers. We get in close. We have good wind. I get set up. He's behind me. And we just use a little like three foot canoe paddle. And it's good because it sounds really authentic, but it also will flash and will show a bowl that what looks like a paddle of a moose. Uh-huh. And so that'll finish him a lot of times. And so I'm set up. He starts raking behind me. He's only like 30 yards behind me. It's really hard to figure out where I'm going to be. So I'm breaking off a few branches in these alders for shooting lanes. And we talk like, okay, this moose could come in. Usually they come in on a straight line, but sometimes they like to circle and get the wind. So if he starts to pull off and circle, you need to fall back here. This is my right. first arch moose. I'm like, okay, cool. So he's coming in. I'm like looking at him through the alders and I can see him. He's like 80. And then he kind of starts sliding off. And so I'm like, okay, this is my chance. He's moving. I need to fall back. So I fall back like 30 yards, have my binos. They're not clipped in my bino harness. Somewhere they depart from my body. Oh, no. And I ended up finding him later in the story. And so I, I fall back and I get to a spot where if he's going to come out, I'll be, he'll be right on top of me, but he won't smell me. He's going to come through this wall of brush. Well, he doesn't. He gets coming to the wall of brush, takes a 90 degree turn, and then he comes right through rake and where I was standing. It would have been a really cool experience, but it would have been like, I would have to shoot him as he's like coming to me, raking through the brush because they're trying to assert dominance and stuff. Come through there. Well, now I've left a bunch of ground sets, snapping off twigs and mm. trying to make shooting lanes and stepping around and like smushing grass down. And so he takes a few more steps. He's like 22 yards from me. All I can see is like his jaw and up to the top of his rack. I'm at full draw. He's looking at me, looking at the caller. You're silent at this point because you don't want to keep calling. A moose will pinpoint exactly where you're at mm-hmm. really precisely. And so then he whirls and he goes to 40. And I arranged the bush. I knew he was close to 40. I put it on him and I shoot. And right as I shoot, he kind of whirls and I hit him pretty far back in the guts. And I'm like, that sucked. I thought I hit him in the back strap. I'm like, well, he's gonna he's gonna live because you can take an arrow on the back strap. We've we've seen that before, and yeah. it's just like a twig hanging out their back. And I'm like, well, that's not very good. But he takes the arrow into the guts. It buries like up to the knock. And I'm like, okay, I got pretty good penetration at 40. I'm shooting like a 500 grain arrow at like 73 pounds, and I have a 31 and a half inch draw. So I got a lot of power in the bow, and you know, just instant gut wrenching feeling. Like I'm a piece of shit. Like I'm never gonna bow hunt again. Right? Yeah. I'm a total loser, and yeah. I should just brought the gun and shot him in the head like that. And uh, but he runs and he gets real slow up to like 50 yards, and then he slows to a walk. He goes up to a little hill. And there's brush all around, and he beds on this tiny little knoll of tundra that's wide open. And I can see him at 150 yards. And I'm, like, running back and forth like a crackhead trying to find my binos. And my buddy's, like, yelling. <laughs> what are you doing? Like, whisper yelling, you know? And so then I then I grab my rangefinder, and I'm, like, looking through my little two-power rangefinder, glassing this moots. And he's bedded, and his head's doing all wobbly. I'm, like, dude, he's hurt, like, really bad. So I, I fall back, talk to my buddy, and he's, like, I don't know if we let him sit overnight or what shot went. It was pretty far back, but it went super deep. And I think he got the liver or something. He's hurting pretty bad. And 
I said, I'm going to sneak up there and I'm a pretty big dude. Right. But this, if the wind's blowing, I drop everything, knock an arrow and I got to cover 150 yards. And there's a little brush between me and him. So I can get to that brush and that cuts me to 80. And so I get to that pretty quick. And then I got to go through a little bit more brush and stuff to be quiet. And he's on high alert because he's wounded. He's sick. He gets up, beds right back down like two times. And I'm like, he's hurting. He's can't even take a step. Right. And so I get up there and I finally get to like 40 yards and I dial my, I got one of those option sites. So I just flip it open. And I dial it to 40. I take two more steps range 38. And then I finally got to 20 and I'm like, I'm below him. And it's the only shot I have, but I don't want to be below a moose. If he has one last charge, he's going to gore me. And that's going to be pretty bad or trample me to death on his last kicks that he's got. But it's the only shot I have. So I'm at 20. I come to full draw. He's got his head down. He kind of lifts his head up. And then I just, at full draw, do like six big steps to the side. I come to 14 and I just literally like Katniss Everdeen, just rapid fire. One, two, three, right in the heart, right in the lungs, like a super tight group of like two inches and just one, two, three. And he dies in 30 seconds. And uh, threw my arms up, gave my buddy the victory pose. He comes up, we hug, we high five. <laughs> and the craziest thing about it, the the eye that was facing us that I was super worried about him seeing me and stuff was like gored and full of pus. And there's no way he was going to see that eye. And if Didn't I would have known that, anyway. I would have I would have walked right across <laughs> this open flat. You know, left my boots on, walked right across this open flat, and let him have it. But uh, you don't know that when you're approaching him. And so I'm really cool. I'm not happy with the shot. It was like literally right when I cut the shot, the moose had smelled me. My buddy stopped him at 40 with a cow call, and I was just set on in. I didn't want to punch it. I wanted a good shot. And right as the arrow was like going over the rest, he whirls. And they whirl so fast that it hit him in the guts. And the shot looked perfect. And I was like, oh, man, that's not good. And uh, I'm just I'm happy it worked out. I'm happy he stopped there because five more steps, he would have in the brush. And it's like, how do you track a gut shot moose? And mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. And uh, we had a couple other moose on the ground. So we had to get that one cut up pretty fast and start flying it out. And it was just cool. It's, you know, archery hunting is really hard. We don't have a lot of archery only seasons here. So it takes a lot of self-discipline to leave the gun in the tent and only bring the bow. But it's so, so much more rewarding when you get it done with a bow because it's so hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Super special. So I'm excited for next year because me and my buddy, we have plans, me and him, and we're going to we're gonna hit it hard in September and hopefully shoot a couple giants with our bows. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Um, Brennan, do you have any other questions for Adam? No. Um, you know, we had Tana on uh, a few months back there, and uh, it was it was important that we had you on here, like me in April. You know, I kind of pride myself on being sort of a menace out in the woods with April and making stuff, you know, funny and difficult. And we see that definitely with uh, a lot of your stuff there. Is there, uh, is there any sort of inside jokes you guys got? just you two out in the woods there that you kind of bring up specifically i know we have a gross one whenever we're turkey hunting or anything hunting i'm talking about how the animals are coming for her cloaca or some weird shit like that you know what do you what do you guys do in the woods probably the most recent one was on this elk hunt and i don't know why i was just pumped up and i'm looking through the spotter you get the all-in thing on the spotter and i'm calling the shots and i'm videoing through the phone videoing through the gopro and tana shoots it and her first shot was like a foot behind the heart. So like low guts. And I said, heart, got him in the heart, shoot him again. Next shot is like a little further forward, a little higher, like just kind of lower back lungs, but still in the lungs. I said, heart, heart, got him again. And I'm just hundred percent confident. Right. And then he turns and the last one, she high shoulders him and sacks him. And then we're looking back and she's like, why was he not dying if I hit him in the heart? My buddy's like, yeah, because they weren't in the heart. And then we look at the footage, <laughs> and you can just hear me. So, like, the rest the rest of the trip when we're looking for an elk for me is just, like, walking around like, oh, got him in the heart. Got him in the heart. 
hard shot. He's done, you know, and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Pretty, pretty funny. So a lot of inside jokes and we talk a lot of shit and throw out a lot of movie quotes. You got to make it fun because hunting sucks. Like it's gotta be miserable for me to almost be enjoying it. It sounds weird. It's like a catch 22, but -hmm. when you can joke with your buddies and stuff like that, um, it makes it a lot easier and there's a lot of inside jokes and, all kinds of stuff. One other one I gotta I gotta tell and I won't drop any names. So the guy we were moose hunting with this year, a buddy of mine, um, we we're hunting and there's a lot of bears around because there's still fish running and stuff. And uh he like yelled at me in the other tent and he's like, Hey, I think I hear a bear. Do you wanna get up and do a bear check? I said, Sure. So I grab my pistol and I roll out in my underwear and stand there with a headlamp and a four fifty four <laughs> looking for bears. Like I don't care so much about us. I'm worried about an airplane. The bears tearing in the airplane or different things <laughs> like that. Maybe I left some food in there. And uh, I look over and I just I see I see his head like almost like a ground squirrel popped out of the tent and just all I could see was his head. That's it. And he's like looking around left and right with his headlamp on. And I'm like, hey, are you gonna get out and do a bear check with me? He's like, and he just felt like a total pussy. He's like, well, I just you were so fast. I'm just like, I'm out of here trying to die. You want a bear check? You're like a freaking squirrel. Just your head popped out of the tent. And so, yeah, the rest of moose season, like, anyone want to do a bear check and just look around and like pull your collar, your coat up and stuff. <laughs> That was pretty funny. So, oh, a lot of inside <laughs> jokes and make it fun and make fun of each other. And yeah, and it, it makes the hunt really. If you can't like give people shit and hunt with, I don't want to hunt with you. You know, it's got to exactly. be fun. You got to be able to roll the punches and have a good time. That's yeah, right. like a lot of friendly banter. 100%. Yeah, we like Sometimes that. it's not so friendly when you're hunting with your spouse, but yeah, usually it works <laughs> out. It's, it's pretty good with April in the blind or in the beginning of a relationship. We'd be sitting next to each other and you know, feeling like a badass, all quiet, everything's good. And then you hear the popcorn bag open. <laughs> Slow head turn to somebody crunching down popcorn. And you're like, wow, this is a bust. Yep. Thanks <laughs> it's a lot. Never, it's never, it's never, never been a bust. Like, it's never been a bust. You're right. But, you know, there's those moments where you're just like, yes, yeah, what are you fucking doing? <laughs> we have plenty of those. Don't worry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> those are the best, though. Like, those are the absolute best. Yeah, Brennan's yeah. really yep. good at like sitting and being like absolutely silent, and I just, I just, I just can't, I just can't sit no. still. Yeah, I'm not good at that. I have too much. <laughs> I have too much ADD. I want to see what's on the next ridge. Yeah, yeah. I just get, like I, all the snacks are eaten within an hour because I can't sit still, and yeah, it's just. I could fall asleep on a fence line and have birds circling me. I'm just chilling. <laughs> <Bird> circling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, shit. Yeah. Well, Christ, we went. Oh, a little over an hour here. You got yeah. uh, you got a few closing statements there, April. Anything you wanted to bring up? No, I'm I'm done for questions. But I just um really wanted to thank you, Adam. You know, I I was not on the podcast with Tana. That was the boys. They got you know to have the opportunity to chat with her, and I was just hoping so much that you know our our chat with you would follow along the same lines, and we would have a good time. And I just want to thank you for that. And it's nice when you get to be on a podcast, you know, co-hosting and sort of interview somebody who's really down to earth and kind of opens your eyes a little bit. So it's been really nice. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been fun. I love, I love doing them. So whenever you need to, I'll take a bottom of the barrel after Tana and jump on and bullshit about <laughs> Well, hopefully we can do some sort of moose roundup at some point. Compare, yeah. compare dick bones. <laughs> yeah. See, see what's been, uh, what's been happening after the season. Let me know. Shit, yeah. That would be great. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on with us, Adam. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Have a good night. You too.
Well, that was a great episode. Hey, April. It was. It was lots of fun recording that one. I was like thinking that we should like totally script the outro and then it sounds like we're reading off a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> thought that'd be pretty funny. Um, do you want to just maybe before we take off here, we'll keep this outro short and sweet, but do you want to maybe jump or jump, talk about the store quick for anybody that's looking for gifts this Christmas? Yeah, sure. Um, so store wise, we've got a really, really nice selection of, um, signature style hats. Uh, we got leather ones and the embroidered ones. We've got the whole line of blaze got some items still there and the whole line of uh, the brand new Pharaoh gear this year. So we have a good selection of, I'd say hats and headgear and all kinds of hoodies. We have got a restock in a bunch of our signature hoodies. So in different colors. Um, so there's quite a good selection of those uh, in the store right now. Yeah. The store has been, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. We got a lot of, a lot of cool items in there. And if anybody's, what's your turnaround, do you think? Like if you, if I went ordered on December 2nd, you yeah. think I'd get it in time for Christmas? I mean, as long as you're not from like Bali or something. Yeah. Right. So if you guys <laughs> um, want to get. Like my, my turnaround, because I'm packaging and shipping out of my house, my turnaround is usually like obviously a weekend kind of messes that up. Um, so we had some items that were ordered Friday and Saturday and I packaged and shipped those today. Right. So because of the weekend, um, if, if you order like on a Monday or something like that, or a Tuesday, I can generally have those packed and shipped in one day, one day to two days. Yeah. So if you want to get something before Christmas, uh, get it in quick and we'll, we'll honor the Movember thing. We'll $2 for every item. We'll donate to the Movember cause. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks for all your continued support. And if you can't support us by buying something, buying some of our merch at the store, please follow us, give us a like or a comment on your podcast platforms, rate us, um, or even just like word of mouth. Word of mouth is huge. And if you're ever on a road trip with your hockey buddies or, you know, taking your kid to hockey to the rink, mention us. Um, If you liked one of our episodes, let someone else know. It goes a long way. We really appreciate the the love and the support that way. So, um, yeah, thanks to everyone that's listening. 